we start a small series on the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know how long it'll be. It probably won't be too long. <clears throat> but prayerfully, it'll be long enough uh, for each of us to have a good grasp on this truth and on this doctrine. Uh, you might ask yourself the question, well, should I know about the return of Christ? Absolutely you should. Uh, it's spoken of in both the Old and New Testaments. Um, and what better place to start um, then in Acts chapter 1 with his departure after he rose from the grave, his ascension. So let's read Acts chapter 1 and we'll read verses 1 to 11. This is to start this series. Verse 1, the former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, that word Theophilus means a friend of God, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up, after that he through the Holy Ghost <clears throat> had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after, after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. <clears throat> And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, you have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or, or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld... He was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. <clears throat> and while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? Well, I could tell you what I'd have said, but, but I mean, you, you, you get this scene. I want you to get into this scene. They're standing there talking to him, and He's taken up before their very eyes. And the Bible says a cloud received him out of their sight. <clears throat> he goes on to say, This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. Let's bow and pray. Father, we pray that... <clears throat> Lord, you would open your word to us this morning. We thank you for this opening reading. We thank you for this true record of that time when the Lord Jesus was taken up into heaven after his resurrection. And now, Lord, I pray that, Lord, you would lead us and give us an understanding from your word uh, on the passages in the word of God that teach us about your return. 
And Father, more than anything, I pray that your return would dictate the way we live our Christian lives. Father, let us live like men and women believing in Christ who believe that the Lord could return at any time. And I pray that would be in each of our hearts. Father, may our affections be set on things above and not on things on the earth. And Father, may we continue to lift up our heads and know that our redemption is drawing nigh with every passing day. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd help us, Father, open our hearts, teach us the word of God, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll have you go to Daniel, uh, I'm sorry, first Psalm and then Psalms and then Daniel. Psalm 47, I believe this is a prophetic statement. It's a victorious Psalm, Psalm 47. And there's a passage in this, in this Psalm that speaks of God going up with a shout, Psalm 47. But start in verse 1 there. Notice the psalmist says, O clap your hands, all ye people. Shout unto God with the voice of triumph. This is a triumphant song. It's a psalm of victory. And he says in verse 2, For the Lord Most High is terrible. He is a great king over all the earth. He shall subdue the people under us and the nations under our feet. He shall choose our inheritance for us, the excellency of Jacob whom he loved, Selah. And then verse 5, God is going up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Brethren, that prophetically speaks of our Lord's ascension into heaven. Now, one more passage in Daniel chapter 7, in verse 13. Daniel chapter 7, in verse 13. Daniel 7.13 <clears throat> This was one of Daniel's night visions. And there were many places in Daniel that we could go, but we're just going to suffice to read this one for now. Daniel writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. Remember what the angel said. Or remember what the book of Acts said, actually. Luke said he was taken up and a cloud received him. Here we see that one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. Now we know that's talking about Jesus Christ. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. And so that speaks of the kingdom of Christ, brethren. Now before we get into this study in earnest, I want to I want to just set forth a few things for you to consider. Now, the second coming of Christ or the return of Christ Beloved, it's a truth that each of you should know. And I believe with all of my heart, it is a basic fundamental truth that you should be able to go to the scriptures and simply read it off the page and understand it. This should not be like some kind of a hidden cipher that you can't figure out. I think the scriptures are very clear on the return of Christ. 
And so, listen, I, I say that, but I'll also say this. There are some very difficult and hard passages concerning the return of Christ that are very difficult and hard to understand. But beloved, there are many clear and plain passages about the return of Christ that are very easy to understand for you. And so you shouldn't look at this doctrine and think, well, I can't understand that, and I don't really know what to believe about that. I believe with all my heart, if you're in Christ, that we can read these passages, and I think that you will understand what they say. And so, and we'll get there in a moment. But before we get to this short series, I, can, this, I encourage you with this. You need, to, you need to ground yourself in the Word of God and then you need to believe and stand upon what God shows you from the scriptures, not what somebody else tells you, not even what I tell you. Listen, I can teach you the truth of God's word, but you mustn't be like one that simply goes and regurgitates what I tell you because I said it. You need to go and be like a Berean and study the scriptures yourself, whether those things are so. You need to go to the word of God and study it. And you, listen, these passages, I believe, are, are very easy and plain to understand, and we'll see that in a few, minute, few minutes. Here's what's alarming about eschatology. Now, eschatology means the study of last things, the study of the end times. That's what the word means. You say, well, eschatology is not in the scriptures. Well, the Greek words are, and I'll show you that in a minute. But again, before we, we, we begin this series in earnest, be careful not to simply believe what you heard somebody say. There are, listen, there's eschatology all over YouTube. There's eschatology all over the web, and you could get confused. Beloved, turn off all that noise and go to the scriptures. And listen, as a bird wandered from her nest, so is those, are those that wander from their place. So what's a nest to a bird? It's a safe place. So listen, embrace what you understand and believe what you understand from the scriptures. Don't simply regurgitate what you've heard and then say, well, that's what I believe. Because then when somebody asks you to defend it, you won't be able to, or you'll defend it with their defense. So it's, you gotta, you gotta understand the scriptures for yourself. Listen, every Sunday you should be going home with any doctrine, not just eschatology. You should be going home and you should ask yourself the question like the Bereans and, and you, you should say, is that so? Like if somebody teaches you something, you should say, is that so? Well, go and see if it's so. And that's your responsibility to do. If you don't do that, then you won't know what you believe about much of anything. And beloved, we ought to know what we believe about, of course, first our soteriology, our, our salvation doctrine. And we ought to know what we believe about our eschatology or the doctrine that the scriptures teach about the return of Christ. Now, Here's two warning signs for you for yourself. And listen, I, I need to heed to these warning signs. These are warning signs that you should look for in your own Christian life concerning anything that's scriptural, any doctrine or anything that you embrace. The first is when you believe something, but you can't go to the word of God and prove it. You say, well, I believe this. Okay, chapter and verse and you can't. What you're saying might in fact be true, but if you can't go prove it, where is your faith? And your faith needs to be in what's written in the word, so you need to be able to go. Here's the second warning sign. 
If you believe something and perhaps it's in error, and yet you won't listen to instruction to correct you. In other words, if somebody says, well, let me show you the scriptures. No, no, I know what I believe. I've actually had people do that. Let me, can I just show you from the scriptures? Nope, I know what I believe and nobody's going to shake me. Nobody's going to shake you off of your error. I mean, let me show you from the word of God. So listen again, be a Berean. They receive the word with all readiness of mind and they search the scriptures daily whether those things were so. In other words, is that so? Listen, this is food for your faith. And listen, this is the work. This is the getting behind the plow of the Christian life and plowing up the stones that might be in your own heart. Or, listen, a lot of people's Christians, their Christianity, their doctrine, it's based on their own faulty presuppositions. A faulty presupposition is something that you just believe because you heard it, but you can't prove it from the word of God. And so that's kind of where we're starting out here. Now, again, the term eschatology, uh, it's the word that it comes from eschatos or eschaton, which is in the Greek, the word where we get our English word in the scriptures last. In fact, in, uh, I think uh, in the London Baptist or in the, the Westminster, you'll find what is the chief end of man? And that word end is eschaton. What is the chief eschaton of man? What's his chief end? Of course, we know to, to fear God and keep his commandments, um, to enjoy God with all of our hearts. And so eschatology, beloved, is the study of last things or end times. Now, John 6, turn to John 6.39. Let me show you that verse, that, that word in just one verse in the book of John, chapter 6 and verse 39. John chapter 6 and verse 39. The words of Jesus. He said, And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day, at the eschatos himera. Himera is day. And so you see those two words, last day, they're translated to those words eschaton or eschatos himera. And so, beloved, that's what it means. That's what eschatology means. It means study of the end times. Webster's, I'm sorry, um, before Webster's is the next term that I'm going to give to you. Next is I want us to have the basic fundamentals of Bible interpretation. I want each of us to be able to remember this and to always remember this when we're reading the Word of God, and that's the fundamentals of biblical hermeneutics. Now, hermeneutics is a big word, and it's basically how to rightly interpret the, uh, and understand the Word of God. So it's, it's right interpretation. Um, Webster's writes, the art of finding the meaning of an author's words and phrases and of explaining it to others, and explaining it to others. So think about this. Hermeneutics is understanding and interpreting the Bible, and this is what it's not. It's not what does this passage mean to me, but rather it's what did the writer intend to teach and communicate, and now how does this apply to me? How does this apply to me? 
So we want to understand the context of what the author was writing. And then it's not how I feel about it. A lot of people say, well, I feel this way about this. Well, it doesn't matter what you feel. What did the author intend? What did God intend from this word? And now how does this truth that I now understand apply to me? So, beloved, that's how we are to read, interpret, and understand the Bible. And finally, know this, that the whole of the scriptures point to Christ. The whole of the scriptures point to Christ. Luke 24, go to, go to Luke 24, just one verse there, or actually a couple of verses, but Luke 24. Luke 24 and verse 27 So remember, in interpreting the Bible, it's not what does this passage mean to me, but rather what did the writer intend to communicate to me. And then to remember that, before we read this, that the writer of the scripture was not the actual author of it. God is. So God's the author. So it wasn't even the writer's intention that he wrote. It was what's the author's intention. And we know that the word of God is divinely inspired. And look what Jesus, this is after his resurrection. In verse 44, he spoke to the, his disciples. He said, these are the words which I spake unto you. In verse, I'm sorry, I wanted to go to 27 first. 24, is that where y'all are, 27? Yeah, 24, 27. He says, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he, that is Jesus, expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The things concerning himself. Now, you may not see Christ in all of the scriptures, and probably none of us will just with our finite minds, but we have to understand that all the scriptures point to Christ. All the Old Testament scriptures pointed to Christ. The New Testament scriptures point to Christ. So you remember that when you're studying the word. And then in verse 44, he said, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Concerning me. Okay, we're getting a little closer, but I want you to turn to Second Peter. We won't get too far in eschatology today because I think these things are important for us to understand first. We will get there, I think, though. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. Peter writes, For we, that is the apostles, the writers of the word of God, we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now we know Peter's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. And this voice which came from heaven, we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. Can you imagine that voice? They heard Peter, James, and John. Verse 19, 
we have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. So now he's going to the root of the matter, the scriptures. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So listen, every passage in the Holy Scriptures must be understood and interpreted with the whole of the Scriptures. And you must never build a doctrine, and I'm going to get to the point of what Peter says here, you must never build a doctrine or, for that matter, your eschatology from one passage of the Scripture. Some people will take one passage of the Scripture and they'll build a little kingdom around it. You must never do that. That's bad hermeneutics. So you must never do that. Listen, to argue a point from one passage of Scripture when there are no other clear and plain biblical references to support your argument it's a dangerous precedent. It's a dangerous method of interpretation, and it will lead you into error to take one passage and to build a little kingdom around it. You must never do that. In fact, turn to 2 Peter 3.16. <clears throat> Here Peter writes, he says, as also in his epistles, that is Paul, speaking in them, of, in them of these things in which are some things hard to be understood. Now, the whole context of 2 Peter 3 is eschatology. And so he's saying, hey, there's some hard things in the theology of the end times, in eschatology, some difficult things to understand. Listen, I believe there's things we won't understand until Jesus returns. But there are some very plain things that God will help us with, I believe. And they're not hard to be understood. But Peter writes here, there are some that are hard to be understood. And here's the mistake that many make. Instead of leaving it where it's at until God gives light or God gives more scripture to show that it's either true or not, they twist it and distort it unto their own destruction. And they're led into error. Listen, if you're in a passage that's hard to understand in anything in the scriptures, not just eschatology, don't try and force your own thoughts or opinions into that passage or distort and twist it into saying what God never intended it to say. Leave it be. Let that tree lie. Listen, every day you'll read in the word of God and you'll, you'll come to passages and I don't really know what that means. That's okay. Ask God to give you light. And as you continue to study the whole of the scriptures, that's why it's so good to read entire books of the scripture. That's why we like to preach here expositionally and preach through whole books. Because you can take one or two thoughts out of a book like 1 Corinthians, and yeah, you might understand them a little bit, but you don't understand them fully until you understand the context of the whole book. And in biblical hermeneutics, it's context, context, context. In other words, what's the author saying and what's the context? What was going on in this passage?
And so when you come to a hard passage, let it go, leave it alone until the Spirit of God sheds more light on it through study of the whole of the Bible. Now, what this passage in verse 20 and 21 means, what Peter says, is the Word of God is not the private and conjured up opinions of the prophets and the apostles, but holy men of God wrote it and were carried along by the Spirit of God as they wrote. In fact, there's some of the writings of the prophets and the apostles that they probably didn't fully understand. And they wrote it down. And so that's because, beloved, the word of God was divinely inspired. And we must be careful with it since it is God's word. We must be careful not to misinterpret it. Listen, every biblical foundational truth taught in the word of God has more than one passage of scripture to confirm it that it is true. There will be more than one proof text. Listen, one witness is not good enough. If you go to court and there's one witness against you, it's not good enough. Two or three witnesses. At the mouth of two or three witnesses. And so, beloved, with the scriptures, if you got that one verse and you find nothing in the whole of the scriptures that, that says, yes, this thought that you're having might be true, you, you need to probably leave that alone. And listen, always remember this. This is a very important principle in hermeneutics. The difficult and hard to understand passages, if they are to be made clear, it will be through the plain and easily understood passages, never the other way around. So beloved, what read the word of God. Read the whole of the word of God. Read whole books. And God will give you understanding. Listen, this needs to be done in the spirit. You need to ask God, help you, illuminate your word to me. Psalm 119, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. On a dark path, if you have a light, how do you see what's way down there if it's dark outside? You have to keep moving forward. And as you keep moving forward, the light will illuminate more of the path. And so you need to continue in the word. So remember this, learn the plain and easy passages. They will shed light on the difficult passages. Now, another thing to remember in hermeneutics is many passages in the word are to be understood literally, the literal interpretation. But many passages in the word of God are symbolic. They, symbol, they, they symbolize things that are spiritual. It's not actually literal. Let, uh, and I want to give you one example of that. Actually, two, but I'll tell you about the second one. Um, go to Revelation 20. Let me, just, let me just show you this. There are things in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ that are not to be taken literally. And here's one of them. Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. Now think about this. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him 
that he should deceive the nations no, long, no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled, and after that he must be loosed a little season. Now let me ask you a question. Do you think the angel really came out of heaven with a literal chain? I mean, think about it. A literal chain. A chain made out of steel. Or what was it made out of? Was it a chain of iron? Beloved, this, this is a... This is to be... It's symbolism. It is to be taken spiritually. The devil didn't... Uh, the angel didn't come out of heaven with a literal chain. And second question, how are you going to chain a spirit with a literal chain? So just think about those things. Here's another passage. You know it. It's in the Gospels. Jesus said, if your right eye offend you, pluck it out. Now, by offense, he means you sin with your eye. If you sin with your hand, he says, cut it off and cast it from you. You think that's to be taken literally? No, it's not. But it's teaching a biblical and spiritual concept, beloved, when we sin with our hands. It's teaching the doctrine of mortification. Doctrine of mortification, kill the old man. You don't actually kill yourself. But, beloved, it's spiritually and it's by faith that we kill the old man. So there are some things, many passages that are literal. Jesus wept. Literally true. He actually did. The apostles watched Jesus ascend into heaven, literal, absolutely. They watched him. Jesus sat by the Sea of Galilee after he had rose up, and they had some fish on the fire, and he ate a honeycomb, ate some fish. Literally happened, absolutely. But there are those other passages, beloved, that they're to be taken spiritually. They're symbolic. They're pictures of what God showed, in this case, the Apostle John in the book of the Revelation. Of, it signified something. In fact, the book of the Revelation opens up telling us that Revelation was written with things that signify. They're signs, symbols. So that's to be understood in really the whole of the Scriptures. So again, learn that the plain and easy things are first. And that's what all, with all of us. When you read the Word of God, man... Strengthen the plain and easy things. Understand those things from the Word of God. Uh, you know, when you started first grade, you didn't start first grade with algebra and calculus, did you? No. You, I didn't get it even after I should have had it. But <clears throat> you started with 1 plus 1 equals 2. And so that's how you started. Think about playing football. You remember when you play Sandlot football? You men probably remember this. My girls did because we played football too. But when you go to the huddle, what's the play? The play is, hey, you run five and out that way. You run ten steps, stop, and then go long. And then you block for me. So y'all understood that, right? Everybody understood? Like, that, that's what you do. So now listen to this. This is a play being called from the huddle. Now listen. Gun flex right, stack dragon smoke, kill turbo right on one. That's an actual NFL play being called, National Football League. Actually, it's one of Drew Brees' plays. He says it that fast, and all the players are around, and they got it. Here's my fear with eschatology. That's what we hear so often. 
instead of understanding the things that should be understandable to us, we hear gun flex right, stack dragon smoke to kill turbo right on one. And we end up not having a clue. And listen, I think this is one of the devil's methods. He wants to confuse you in eschatology. And listen, eschatology has one main objective for you in your Christian life, and we'll see it at the end of this sermon. It's Peter tells us, seeing that all these things shall come to pass, that is that the Lord Jesus is going to return, it should do something in every one of you. It shouldn't turn you into Sherlock Holmes and going and trying to decipher things with charts and graphs. No, beloved, we need to use the Holy Scriptures. Finally, always keep in mind that the Word of God is a book of progressive revelation. By progressive revelation, I mean when you go to Genesis 3.15, that's, I'd like to liken it to the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. But that's all they knew. As they went on further, they learned more about this man-child that would come. And so you get all the way to the book of Matthew in the New Testament, and you know that the promised seed is the, is the son born of a virgin. And you find that through the book of Isaiah. So, beloved, the Bible is a book of progressive revelation. There will always be more clarity and always more clearness in the New Testament and in latter revelations in the scriptures of what is written. Not in the Old Testament. Yes, there's truth in the Old Testament, but beloved, there will be more clarity and clearness as you move through the progressive revelations of the Word of God. Again, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Augustine wrote this, and we're going to get into eschatology now. Augustine wrote, The Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. The Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. You read something in the Old Testament, you, and it's a major doctrine of the Scriptures, you're going to find more clarity in the New Testament. It's going to be expounded. And so the New Testament conversely, is hidden in the Old Testament scriptures. And so, beloved, remember this. Now, now I want you to go to Matthew chapter 13. And with that in mind, I want you to listen. I want you to just listen when I read. And I want you to take hold of this and listen to what I am reading about the Word of God and listen to what is plain and easy for you. Matthew chapter 13. I love this passage because here Jesus was speaking parables to a multitude. And he speaks these parables. And then before he explained it, he dismissed the multitude. And the apostles asked him. And he had a little private Bible study with them. And he explained it to them. But listen to it. Matthew 13 and verse 24 says another parable put he forth unto them saying now remember and listen this parable is about what's going to happen in the end times the last days he says the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field now y'all understand that Aiden and I talked about that it's farming so he sowed good seed in his field but while men slept 
his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. So immediately we understand that this is a wheat field. And this guy sowed wheat seeds, but somebody came in that night and threw tear seed, weeds, basically. It says, but when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares. In other words, the man that sowed the good seed, he did, it's like the enemy came in at night and did this. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence hath it tares? In other words, why is there weeds in the field? We plowed it all up. It was good ground. There shouldn't be all these weeds in the field. And he said unto them, An enemy hath done this. And the servants said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? In other words, should we go and weed the garden? Now listen, this is a picture of the church. And basically the good man of the house says, Nope, let the tares grow alongside the wheat. And he tells why, because he said, you might not know that you're pulling up a wheat. Because if you looked at a tear and I looked at them, it looks just like a wheat. In other words, the weed almost looks just like it. The difference is the fruit. So they're growing up together and, and the servants wanted to go and yank them all up. He says, no, 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 no. And look, that's a great lesson for us in the church to, don't, to not be going around trying to judge people's professions. Preach the word and let God do his work. Don't go try and yank people out. Listen, I'm not the judge. God is judge. And so preach the word. And so basically he says, don't pull them up. He says, lest while you gather up the tares, you root up also the wheat with them. Verse 30, let both grow together until the harvest. Now we all understand this. So, I mean, is anything difficult so far? Shouldn't be anything difficult so far. It's a field, there were seeds thrown, and the enemy came and threw bad seeds in it. So you got wheat and weeds growing in the same field. Let both grow together until the harvest, and in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, gather you together first the tares. So now go get them. Now go get all the tares and bundle them up and burn them. So now go gather them up. And now there's a distinction made because now they know what's the wheat and what's the tares. How do they know? Because a tear doesn't have fruit. So they get all the, pulling all the tares, bundle them up and burn them. That's interesting. First gather the tares. Very interesting. So now, go to verse 34, and now is the explanation. The explanation. All these things spake Jesus unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable spake he not unto them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came unto him, and they said, Could you please tell us about the tares? Declare unto us the tares. Tell us what you're talking about. And he answered them, and now's the explanation, brethren. He that sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. In other words, Christians. So everybody's with me so far, right? You understand that. The good seed are the Christians. But the tares are the children of the wicked one. 
So this parable is showing us in totality the righteous and the wicked in the world and a great harvest that comes in the end of the world. And this is one of the places where Christ teaches us and encapsulates this teaching in this parable, which he now explains. So he goes on to say, uh, okay, the field is the world, the good seed of the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. So now we, we, got, we got names to faces. We know what's going on. The harvest is the end of the world. Now, that's pretty easy, right, to understand? In other words, the harvest is the end of the world. Wait, who are these servants? Who are these reapers? The reapers are the angels, the angels of God. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. Means the end of the age. So, so shall it be in the end of the world. So now we got a, we got a, a snapshot from the Lord himself of one aspect of what's going to happen when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And look at verse 41. He goes on to give a little more clarity. He says, The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom, which tells us that he's reigning now, right? Because he's a king. You're not, you don't have a kingdom unless you're a king. Gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father, who hath ears to hear, let him hear. And so we, listen, we should kind of get that. It's, it's a pretty good snapshot. And you can say, look, that's, that, I understand that. Now, turn over to Matthew 25. We're going to read one more, and that's going to be all for today. But Matthew 25, Matthew chapter 25. So in the first parable, we see the righteous and the wicked in the field of the world, and then we see a great harvest at the end of the age. So those are waypoints in that passage that we can see that when this harvest happens, it's the end of the age. It's the end of the world. And we'll get to that later, but it shows what age we were in. This present age. So there are two ages. There's this age and the age that is to come. And we'll see that later on. So now, Matthew 25, 31. Here's another snapshot of what's going to happen. Gives a little different aspect. 25, 31. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all his holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And before him shall be gathered all nations, means all peoples. And he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divideth the sheep from the goats. So, I mean, they're gonna, he's going he's gonna to herd the righteous over to the right side of his throne and the goats to the left, believers and unbelievers. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Verse 34, then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now, turn over to 1 Peter. Just Let's intermission here just for a moment. Let me show you something in 1 Peter 
chapter 1 and verse 3. And you, you've, you've heard this often. And listen, as you learn the truth of the word of God about the return of Christ, then in your study of the whole of Scripture, you'll see more truths that confirm this. Now, this one's already confirming the other one, isn't it? It's, it's similar. So we see that it's similar to what we just read. Look at 1 Peter 1.3. Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold which perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, in whom though now you see him not, yet believing you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, and in that day receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. And so we're talking about that return, that coming of Christ. So now the king speaks to those on his right hand. So let's play this out in our minds, what we've just read. What just happened? The Lord Jesus descended with his holy angels. And now it's the harvest, similar to what we read in Matthew chapter 13. Everyone is gathered together. Now, the righteous and the wicked at the same time. They're gathered together. And now first he speaks to the righteous. He says in verse 35, I was hungry and you gave me meat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came unto me. And then shall the righteous answer him saying, and look, listen, if you're in Christ, you can definitely say, I can see myself saying this next thing. When did we see you, Lord, hungry and fed thee or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in or naked and clothed thee? When saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of one of the least of these my brethren, you've done it unto me. So it teaches us about our Christian lives. When we do the things that we do for people, we do them for Christ's honor and glory. We do them because we love Christ. When we fed this person that was hungry, we did it for Christ. And Christ says, when you did it to them, you did it to me. When you visited them in prison, you visited me. And so, we're listen, I believe with all my heart, that'll be our spirits when we're there. We're not worthy of this, Lord. He'll say, enter into the joy of thy Lord. He says, you did these things, you've done them unto me. That's the life of a Christian. In opposition to that, the king shall answer them. And it says, he shall tell the ones on his left, or he shall answer them, verse 41, depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you took me not in. Naked and you clothed me not. 
sick and in prison, and you visited me not. And that, in brief, teaches us how we should not be as Christians. That should never be our spirits, beloved. Then shall they answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee hungry or athirst or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye did it not unto one of the least of these, ye did it not unto me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous unto life eternal. Now, in those two passages alone, Matthew 13, the first and second, in the parable and in the explanation, and in Matthew 25, 31 to 46, you have a very solid and basic understanding of the return of Christ. You do. You go back and you study that for yourself and you'll see that when the Lord Jesus comes, the angels are the reapers. There's another passage, I believe it's in Matthew, that his angels will gather up his elect from the four winds. I mean, there are so many scriptures that speak and confirm this. And listen, we're going we're gonna to actually... We're going to study more of the plain passages next time, and then we're going to move to the ones that are a little more difficult, but they, they can definitely be confirmed by what we've read of those that are plain and easy to understand. Now, in closing, what should the doctrine of the return of Christ do in you as a child of God? What amazes me is, is there's lost people out there that they're, they're looking at the return of Christ like some kind of a... Nostradamus documentary when they don't realize that if you don't believe in Christ you don't want him to come back now and so beloved what should it do in us 2nd Peter and we'll close there 2nd Peter 3 9 2nd Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 and of course this is one of the chapters that we'll go to but we'll just read the ending portion. Peter says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. Now, what's the promise here? That he's going to return. And it says that in the beginning of the chapter. And he says he's not slack concerning his promise because of scoffers. And listen, we must be so very careful that we in our hearts don't begin to say, where's, where's he at? The Lord delays. Remember, a day with the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. It's in this very chapter. So, beloved, he's not slack, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Listen, God is going to save his people from their sins. He's going to save every one of those that he has chosen to salvation. He's going to save. Verse 10 gives us another clue about the return of Christ. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. This is not the only place that you'll see that term. How does a thief in the night come? Suddenly. In fact, I remember um, someone used to go to our old church. She got up and she was going into the kitchen and she went into the kitchen and they had like the kitchen table and two windows there and a carport and when she went in there to get something it was dark and she was I don't know what she was getting she 
there was a thief. He was leaning in the window and like this, and he had his hand on her purse. And she screamed and ran in the other room. Of course, he ran. The day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Listen, if we know when the thief's coming, if we know a thief is coming, well, we're going to watch, right? So that's how the day of the Lord will be. And he says, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Sounds like the end of the age when you go back to Matthew 13 and Matthew 25. Now here's, here's what this should do in you and me, beloved. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner or type of persons ought you to be, Christian, in all holy conversation and godliness? Looking for, those two words mean anticipating and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we according to his promise look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, that is the return of Christ, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. Now, one more passage in 1 Thessalonians, and I want to make a point to you here, and then we'll close. Just one verse and really one word. In verse 15, First, I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians 4.15. 1 Thessalonians 4.15. Paul writes, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord. That word the or the or T-H-E is what's known as a definite article. In other words, it's talking about something specific or not anything else. If it was an indefinite article, it would say a coming of the Lord, which means there might be multiple ones, but it's the definite article. It's like saying John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way. The is a definite article. There's no other way. It's the only one. The definite article points to one thing and one thing only specific. The day of the Lord. There's one day of the Lord, beloved. And we'll see that as we continue to open up the scriptures more and more. So the definite article, the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them that are asleep. And it goes on, beloved, to show this. But I wanted you to see that. But listen, this basic truth of the return of Jesus Christ from the scriptures is not hard to understand. There are indeed hard things to understand, but beloved, don't complicate the word of God. Don't let somebody else complicate it for you. Study it for yourself and remember the plain and clear passages of the word of God will help you to understand not all, but some of the more difficult passages in the word of God. But don't ever cast off the plain and simple passages or the easy to understand passages for the difficult passages. That's to do it backwards. Now listen, 
In closing, if you're outside of Christ, you are not ready for Jesus to return. You are not ready for the Lord to descend with his mighty holy angels with him. And so if you're outside of Christ, now is the accepted time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Well, amen. We'll dismiss there and we'll close in prayer. And then we'll enjoy a meal uh, in fellowship. So bow with me and pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you'd help us, Father, to understand the truth of thy word, Father, about your return. And Lord, I know that, Father, there are so many difficult things to understand about many of thy truths and doctrines in the scriptures. But, Father, you make many, Father, in contrast, very plain to us. But in all of this, Father, I don't ever want to cast out the Holy Spirit, Father. We need your Spirit to give us understanding in these truths. But, Father, help us not to complicate the Word. Father, help us to open it up. Help us to be able to rightly divide it. Help us to study to show ourselves to be approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. Father, we ask for your help and blessing. Lord, finally, we ask that you'd bless our meal. The Thank you for the hands that have prepared it for everyone that contributed. Lord, I ask that you'd bless the conversation that we have over the lunch table, and we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.